Hello again. My name my name's Dick Foth, and I'm the oldest part of the teaching team here, and I came back. So my name, we're, <clears throat> we're going to talk about the hallowed name. This theme that we're on is called Hallowed. And when we say the Lord's Prayer together, it's Hallowed Be Thy Name. Going to talk about that tonight. My name is Richard Bruce Foth. Now, I'd like you to turn to a couple of folks near you and say, my name is, just go ahead, go ahead, take your time, just say it to somebody. Can you sign my name to them? Can you sign, yeah, sign my name to them. See, you know, some of you, I saw some of you going, say that again? You know, I don't get that. Some names are like really serious names. Some names are maybe even profound. Some are funny, just funny names. Um, The first Thursday in February, every year since 1952 or 53, there's a thing called the National Prayer Breakfast held at the Hilton Hotel. Uh, House and Senate members, certain House and Senate members have sponsored it to pray for the first family of the United States. And so every year for 59 years, every president and spouse has gone to this event. This last year, the keynote speaker was Randall Wallace. They sort of broke with tradition. They used to have political types and business leaders. But Randall Wallace is a screenwriter from Hollywood. He wrote the screenplay for We Were Soldiers, for Secretariat, and for Braveheart. And at the start of his talk, he was talking about his family, and it was just, he talked about some, it's just this funny, well, you can see it. Now, I've lived a life of tremendous privilege. I was, I grew up right down the road from here in Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, Virginians are righteous and sober people, too proud to tell a lie. But I was born in Tennessee. My father was born in Lizard Lick, Tennessee. The men in my father's family are Alton, Elton, Dalton, Lyman, Gleeman, Herman, Thurman, and Clyde. They, they called Clyde Pete, and nobody knew why. You know, some names are just funny. That's just how that works. I've been working for months to try to figure out how I could use that clip, and tonight was the, today was the day. So, so how did you get your name? You know, my my grandmother on my dad's side was what they called Volga Deutsch. She was a German born in Russia. When uh, Catherine married Tsar Peter, they started moving Germans in on the Golden uh, on the uh, Volga River. And so there are these communities that are German communities historically in Russia. And um, my name is Foth. I think it came from Vogt, V-O-G-T, which means a land administrator, somewhere near Bern, Switzerland, in one of those German cantons or something. But my grandmother's maiden name, her name was Louisa Schiebelhut. <laughs> now, if you're a Schiebelhut here, that's cool, but I'm always grateful for Foth. I just wanted to throw that in. <laughs> But what's, what's in a name? You know, sometimes, historically, people have been named after places or towns, cities, rivers. 
Western Europe and other places, your function, you're a miller or a carpenter or a farmer or a goldsmith. Um, in, in some Hispanic uh, names, I understand, the last name of all those names put together would be the mother's maiden name or the mother's family name. Uh, if you're from Asia, your family name like comes first, I think. And, and so, you, you know, you swap all this around. And if I'm wrong here, those of you who come from those regions, you come correct me afterwards. I just thought I'd give it a go because I think that's correct. <laughs> but all of them are identifiers. And, and, and they're deep in us. For example, Foth is my clan name. That means that's the group to which I belong. There are two things I need in my life. I need to know that I belong and I need to know that I'm unique. So Foth is my belonging name, and Richard is my unique name within that clan. The way we talk about names is deep in us. It, we, we talk about dishonoring the family name. We're talking about reputation. We talk about dragging your name through the mud. It's an, just an interesting way of speaking. In Scripture, name often equals nature. Emmanuel, God with us. Yeshua, from which we get Jesus, is the one who saves or the God who delivers. Ebenezer, hitherto has the Lord helped us. Names are changed in the Bible to denote changes in lives or roles. Abram was changed to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul, Jews in exile in Babylon, the, the Babylonians changed their names to take away their identity. My name is my identity. So when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, why does he, what does hallowed be your name mean? I'm not going to talk so much about the name tonight as I am talking about what does it mean to hallow a name? Like that's old English language or at least middle English language, something. But what's the essence? Why does Jesus start here? Now, last week, we said the Lord's Prayer together from Matthew, the sixth chapter, in the King James Version. Um, the King James Version of the Bible was commissioned, I guess, by the King of England, and it was printed or written in 1611. This week, according to the Washington Post, this week is the 400th anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible. So I think we just might as well do the King James Version of the Lord's Prayer again. So why don't we say that again? It'll be on the screen. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we're saying to God, may your name be holy. Why pray that? I mean, various places in the Old Testament, we are commanded not to profane the name of God. The third commandment among the Ten Commandments reads this way in Exodus 27. 20 verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So we say, don't, don't take it in vain. Don't profane it. Don't 
misuse it. To profane, to profane means to treat something sacred with disrespect. To hallow means to set something apart as holy and revere it. So what does that look like? What is hallowing something? How does hallowing work? If we were to leave here and get in our cars or walk or jog or ride our bikes or skateboards or something over to the mall and go down to the far end, past the reflecting pool where Forrest Gump ran through it and all that, and and up the stairs, past that two-thirds of the way up place on the Lincoln Memorial where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech, and you go up and you stand looking at Lincoln sitting there. You know, I have... When I lived here for 15 years, I would go to the Lincoln Memorial, take guests. But I'd been there at 2 in the morning, and there were people there. I'd been there at 10 in the morning, and there were people there. I'd been there at 10 at night, and there were people there. I think more international people go there than any other monument. That's just a faux guess, because it, it, it captures the idea of freedom, of liberation in some way. It's sort of the American ideal is captured there. But if you stand in front of Lincoln and you look this way, you're looking at his second inaugural address, which some say may be the the best piece of writing ever in the English language. If you turn this way, you see something he wrote on November the 19th, 1963, about an hour and a half from here on the battlefield in Gettysburg. And um, it reads this way. Some of you know it. You learned it in the eighth grade. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate. We cannot consecrate. We cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. There is something so essential about hallowing something. It's at the core, at the deepest and highest place of our being. And, and when you read the Ten Commandments, when you read these these words in Exodus 20, it talks about him being, talks about God being jealous for his name. That's interesting language. Question is, why? Well, that was a polytheistic culture. There were, there were many gods. Um, Yahweh, Jehovah, if you will, is distinct. He's unique. Last week I talked about the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God a single monotheistic God. Now, this is not some whimsical God. This is not some God who's vitriolic, who has to be appeased. This is the God, 
who when you turn to him, embraces you. This is the God that when you run to him, he says, I'm so glad you came home. I've been waiting for you. Secondly, he's a unique God. He is the unique God. And it's a unique juxtaposition that this language at the first of the Lord's Prayer gives. Our Father, the one in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's this juxtaposition of intimacy and awesomeness. It's this juxtaposition of closeness and up there or out thereness. I, I think it's like sex and marriage. It's absolutely intimate and absolutely exclusive. It is to be fully enjoyed and to be revered. It is unique, but it is set apart. We don't talk about it at Starbucks or at Ebenezer's for that matter. <laughs> that's, a, that's a unique juxtaposition of ideas. And I think that's the, that's the core of our Father, the one in heaven, hallowed be your name. But what does it mean like to take his name in vain, to profane it? What's the opposite of hallowing? The opposite of hallowing is to profane something. It's to profane something. That's why when troops came in and took the temple in Jerusalem, they sacrificed pigs on the altar because they wanted to profane something sacred so it wouldn't be used again. To profane God's name means to attribute something to God that is not true means to attribute something to God that is not, tr not true. Various of the tribal groups around Israel would invoke the name of their gods when they wanted to give weight to something. So they'd say, oh, Sarah says, you know, or Marduk says, or Ra says, or whatever. It's adding things to God that, that diminish him. He didn't say that. He wouldn't say that. And when you say that, it lacks credibility. I mean, the first profaners, if you will, are Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There's that passage in Genesis 3 where God has told Adam, you got the whole garden. I love this. You know, it's a tremendous business deal for Adam. He's got the whole garden, and there's only one tree you got to cultivate, but you can't, you can't eat from it. That's the only thing. Everything else is yours. Any businessman sitting in this room or in any room, any place that's listening, you'd love that deal. I mean, all this capital put up, and, and there's only one tree you don't eat from. But when the serpent comes, or when the enemy comes in the form of a serpent to Eve in Genesis 3, 3, this is what she says. Because he says, surely you're not going to die if you eat of that tree. And what she says, we can't eat from it, and neither can we touch it. That's attributing something to God that is not true. That is profaning his name. That is profaning his reputation. This is what, uh, this is what Jesus really got ticked at with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious types, but they weren't priests. They were guys who just wanted, they started out wanting to get it right, and by the time they got done getting it so right, they got it wrong. And the way they did it is by adding stuff. 
They added stuff. When you add stuff to Jesus, to when you add stuff to the I am, you don't make him better. You dilute him. You profane him. Some of you have seen me use my little illustration about water and Coke. I was asked to give a message on simplicity one time, the simplicity of Jesus, and I was at a golf tournament, and I was walking through the tent, and I just had this thought, and I picked up a Poland spring water and a, and a can of Coke, and I love both of those, by the way. And um, I just indicated, and I really don't have this in my notes, but I just I thought I'd throw it in here. Uh, I just indicated that uh, this is a simple formula. This is like a pure thing. This is two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Your body is two-thirds this. If you don't get this for five days, you die. Coca-Cola uses water. It adds to water. And uh, I really like the taste of Coca-Cola. But this formula just goes on forever. I mean, it, and we don't exactly know what the formula is, but it's not, it's not great. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. If you drink a lot of this, you'll swell up. I've gained hundreds of pounds drinking this. <laughs> if you drink a lot of this, it'll rot the teeth right out of your head. If you drink too much of this, it'll kill you because it's toxic. You put this on your plants, you don't put this on your plants. You, uh, you put this on, you wash your car with this, you don't wash your car with this. You take a bath in this, you don't take a bath in this. Why? Because that leaves gunk and crud and corruption. And this is a cleansing agent. When you add stuff to God, when you profane Him, you don't make Him better. You dilute Him. And sometimes you can even make Him toxic. So, my question is, why do we do that? Why do we add ideas and rules and profane him in that way, not hallow him? Why do we do that? I have a theory. This is not Bible. It's just faith. It's just a theory. And the theory is that if I do that, that's the part of our relationship I can control, the rule part. I can control that. And if I can control that, I can control you. The second piece is close to attributing something to God that isn't true. And that is misrepresenting God's nature. Misrepresenting God's nature. Suggesting that he would do something that in fact he doesn't do. I have a dear friend. We were in a group not long ago and a number of the folks didn't know each other. And so we were asking questions. Where were you born and brought up? Going around the circle. And I asked this question. When did God become more than a word to you? And we got to her. She said something to this effect. It's not exact, but something to this effect. God became more than a word to me when I stopped putting other words after his name. I'll just let you think on that for just a moment. You see, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, when some, someone in the great out there hits their thumb with a hammer and references God in the process, I don't think God's after hammers. I don't, I don't. So the idea is, are you saying that Swearing is not profaning God's name or what we call swearing. Well, when I, when I swear at something I don't like, when I use language that's inappropriate, if I use gutter language or vulgarity, then that cheapens me. I mean, that just you know, says something about me. If I misuse the Lord's name, that cheapens him because he's not into, you know, getting after hammers or whatever it is. That, that's not what he... But he does. 
So language may be a piece of it, but I think sometimes we say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't say God this and God that. And so don't do that. That's just this little piece of it. Profaning his name or not hallowing his name is a much deeper thing. I think the real question is not about my language so much as it is about how do I live my life in a way that does not profane the Most High God or conversely hallows Him? How do I live my life in a way that hallows His name? When you, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, it allows and encourages you to calibrate your life in that way. If each day we were to say, start out the day, and, and I don't do this, by the way, I need to do it more. Even studying this has encouraged me this, in this way. If I, if I start the day by saying, our Father, the one in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I think about that. I say, let this day be a day in which my life is walked out in such a way that your character is revered, that your name is lifted up. I don't have to say his name. You know, I don't have to walk down the street saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But, but, the, but the, idea, the idea is that my life is lived in such a way that it draws positive attention to this one whom I love and serve and not negative attention to him. We hallow your name. You are my source. Your ways and your will and your kingdom are preeminent. You provide for our daily basic needs. He's talking to people when he says this prayer. He's talking to people who spend most of their time trying to get food for that day. You go to two-thirds or more of the world, and you still, that's where those folks are. I mean, we can swing by 7-Eleven, or we can go to a drive-thru, or we can... Uh, food is not what we get up worrying about generally, but most of the world, much of the world, this, give me this day our daily bread, is like the core idea of a prayer like this. You provide for our daily needs. You model and empower the forgiveness we need to make life work. Forgive us our debtors as we... I have a friend, you know, forgiveness is the guts of any relationship. I have a friend who says marriage is an ongoing series of forgivenesses. It doesn't have to be huge things. I mean, but we, when you live that close and you have those many interactions, you're saying, whoops, sorry for that, a lot. You know, I'm, I'm a specialist. I can say I'm sorry in 12 different languages. Actually, I can't, but I... And then he says, you're the God who does not take us down evil roads. You don't put us in places where dominating temptations, to, but protect us, deliver us from evil, from the evil one. Because it's your kingdom, your power, your glory forever. So, hallowed be your name. What does it mean? It means that I live my life and that I express my life in language in such a way that God's reputation is made clear and sustained and um, deemed attractive for those who might be in the same place with me. You say, boy, that's, what I need is one more task. Yep, that's what I need. 
It's not a burden. It's a gift. This is a gift. I not only have a model for that, but by His Spirit I'm empowered for that. I was a child of darkness. Now I'm a child of light. And um, that's how it works. You say, do you have it absolutely right? Of course not. Are you working on it? Yes, I am. Do others in your life help you? Yes, they do. Hallowing His name is not, not, is not just not saying things. Hallowing His name is walking life out in a way that takes other people with me, if you will. I always like driving past the Mayflower Hotel on Connecticut Avenue. Not just because it's an old and venerated place, but because I first heard of it from a scientist at the University of Illinois. A number of you have heard me talk about light and my friend Dr. Howard Momstead, who has now gone on. But I first met Howard Momstead when he showed up in a church service where I was a young pastor at the university or near the university, and we had maybe 60, 50, 60 people in the congregation at the time. And um, one Sunday morning, he and his wife showed up in the back row. When you only have 50 or 60 people, you know everybody who shows up. And afterwards, a grad student came up to me and said, do you know who that was? I said, I have no idea, because they were older people. They were like 43, 44, something like that. <laughs> well, when you're, when you're 26, 43, you know, you're on a downhill slide. You're about gone. <laughs> and uh, I said, I have no idea who that is. And he said, that is the Howard Momstead. I said, fantastic. Who is the Howard Momstead? I have no idea who that is. Turns out that Howard Momstead was one of the top, a world-renowned analytical chemist who spent his life uh, and helped help develop the arena of spectroscopy and spectrophotometry. For those of you who are scientists, that's the use of light for scientific measurement. I had to learn how to spell that after I met Howard. But the fact is that he had won all the prizes there were to win. He had, during his tenure... He, he quit the university at age 54 to go found another university. But by that time, he had under him graduated 68 Ph.D. students. And for those of you who are in academics, you know that's a huge number of Ph.D. students to graduate. Anyway, I got to know Howard, and I said, Howard, how did you show up in this church on this Sunday morning? And he said, I'd read a book by a woman from Arlington, Virginia, by the name of Sarah Patton Boyle. She was an aristocrat. She was raised by a black nanny. She, during the Civil Rights Movement, wanted to help the black community, the African-American community, and so she went to help them, and they didn't want her. And the white community, when she did that, dropped her. She, and she said, I, I fell into Jesus, and I found someone who did want me in Jesus. And so she wrote this book called The Desegregated Heart. Well, my friend Howard had read that book. He said, I was fascinated by it. And so he was on an advisory board of a dozen folks for the National Institutes of Health. They served five-year terms. And he said, I was back there for a meeting, and I, out of the phone book, out of the blue, I found her name, and I called her. She said, I'm free tomorrow. I'd be happy to see you. He said, I called my wife, and she flew in from Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, and we met Sarah Patton Boyle in the 
lobby of the Mayflower Hotel. This is 1970. This is 40 years ago. And he said, Dick, when she walked into the Mayflower, a different presence came into that hotel. And out of that, his journey in Jesus and in the Spirit just exploded. And he became co-founders of a university for a group called Youth with a Mission called University of the Nations in Kona, Hawaii. Left the university at the peak of his career, but his impact on his students and his impact in his academic culture and his impact on young guys like me was profound. He left his fingerprints on my soul, but I'll never forget him saying, when, when Sarah Patton Boyle walked into the lobby of the Mayflower, a different presence came into the room. When I hallow his name, when I, when I ask him to help me live life in a way that would not sully his reputation, when I live, want to live life in a way that brings glory and attraction to him, I believe his presence is with us in a way. I would love for somebody to say of me, so far it's not happened, but I'd, I'd love for somebody to say of me, when Foth walked into the room, a different presence walked into the room. Don't know exactly how it works or what it is, but that's, that's what I dream of. Our Father, the one in heaven, hallowed be your name. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity to be with you. Thank you for this weekend. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you who have the name that is above all names allow us to call you Papa. That you who have the name that is above all names want us to walk in such a way that the family name, the family reputation will not just be upheld but will in fact be attractive to others. I need help in that, Lord. You know how desperately I need help in that. And my friends listening to me here, I'm sure they need it too. We count on your help. Thank you for the privilege of bearing your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said,